Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the government's latest travel restrictions take aim at land borders. As of February 15th, when you return to Canada through a land border, you'll need to show a 72-hour PCR test, just like for air travel. Reaction to the decision to cancel repayment demands for some Canadians who applied for the CERB. This seems like a simple thing, but it is something that is just a game changer and a lifesaver and an anxiety reducer for so many people across the country who have been living under the cloud and the worry of having to repay uh, a benefit that they applied for in good faith. And a warning from the director of CSIS that foreign governments are aggressively targeting Canadians. It is no secret that we are most concerned about the actions by the governments of countries like Russia and China. But we should also not discount the threat activity evolves and can originate from anywhere in the world. It's Wednesday, February the 10th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. We're joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Mark. So the federal government is going to require a negative COVID test for anybody who is entering the country at a land border. This is the continuation of uh, several measures that have been taken recently to uh, protect Canadians against those who are entering the country. There, of course, have been previous measures introduced for those flying into the country. What do you make of this? Well, I think it's another uh, uh, ratcheting up of the uh, you know precautions that are being taken uh, by the federal government in areas that it controls. Uh, and crossing the borders into Canada is a clear and unambiguous uh, federal jurisdiction where it can... Uh, you know, have an influence on on what's going on in terms of uh, you know other ways the virus can worm its way into the Canadian population. So I'm not really surprised. In fact, uh, you know, I I think a lot of countries are going to go this route, and um, you know, it's it's a complication certainly for restoring business and the economy and international travel. Uh, but I do think it's one of those things you will find uh, fairly broad uh, appeal among the public. You know, the one downside, though, Mark, is, of course, you can get tested Monday and get infected Tuesday, and the, te- the Monday test doesn't show that. So there are, uh, you know, it's not perfect, but again, uh, measures to control the border uh, are required at this time. What are your thoughts on where we stand with regard to vaccines? Of course, uh we're learning that Health Canada is in the final stages of looking at the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, I know the federal government will is probably feeling like they're ready to do anything they can to get new vaccinations happening in this country. Um, is If we catch up in the weeks ahead, does this all go away or are there lingering impacts of, of uh, some of these delays? Well, uh, you know, I think from a public point of view, public policy and politics point of view, I think people over time, when they feel that they and their families are being protected by vaccination, uh, that, you know, the criticism will, you know, ebb away. Uh, Don't forget, some of the criticism is political as well, Mark. I mean, uh, you know, there are political advantages of of criticizing, criticizing the government's vaccine rollout. And, you know, there's uh, been some commentary out there as well saying, you know, uh, what are the proposals from the many, many critics to do it any better? Uh, But it's a start and stop thing. I mean, AstraZeneca seems to be coming online, yet at the same time, uh, I saw early this morning, 
the South Africans are uh, pulling back from AstraZeneca's vaccine because it doesn't work very well on the so-called South African variant. So uh, I think there's going to be a lot of these bumps and, and potholes along the way that uh, that we're going to hit before this thing is really, um, you know, appears to be in order, if you will, that it becomes a, a fairly routine matter of dealing with it as it pops up here and there. All right, let's talk for a moment about uh, some of the benefits that have been extended to Canadians over the last 11 months. And, uh, and I know that... Um, there is uh, there's been a lot of scrutiny recently, obviously, on who's received those benefits and who hasn't. Um, and uh, the government is saying basically people who receive the Canada Emergency Response Benefit incorrectly are not going to have to repay it. Um, how do you think Canadians will will feel about that? Well, you know, you're going to get a you're going to get the, a mixed reaction, I guess, to some degree. I mean. Uh, Someone said to me, oh, well, you know, their kids that work part-time at McDonald's were getting, uh, you know, $2,000 a month in serve payments and all this. I, I'm skeptical that things like that happened. Um, but I do think that the mighty arm of Revenue Canada will figure out uh, eventually who got it correctly under the rules and who didn't. And it seems to me in this case, there may have been a fair number of people who applied for it and received the benefit, uh, you know, not really understanding the, the full extent of the rules, which, let's face it, were put together at absolute, you know, breakneck speed. This was not the type of multiple-year rollout of a federal spending program that you would sure. ordinarily see yeah. in public policy. Yeah, so there was bound to be gaps. People will always either exploit those gaps intentionally or fall into them, Which, and I think in this case, the Prime Minister is talking about forgiveness for people who didn't quite understand all the rules or maybe the rules were not made clearly enough. Um, and I also think Ottawa must feel that its rulemaking uh, lacked certain precisions, shall we say, or else they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't give anybody any slack. It would be the rules are clear, you didn't follow them too bad, you're going to pay. But that's not what they're saying this time around. All right. Let's turn away from the coronavirus pandemic and talk about a couple of other stories. The director of CSIS, David Vigneault, said yesterday that China is deliberately trying to steal Canadian secrets and undermine critics of the government in Beijing, which uh, I don't think comes as a big surprise to anybody. But it is interesting to hear, especially with everything that's going on with Canada's relationship with China right now, to hear the director of CSIS talking about this, isn't it? Yes, and I, I don't think it's a Canada-only situation, Mark. I, I do think that the Western, uh, I'm not going to say alliance anymore because that's just too wishy-washy, but the Western countries that are dealing with the ascendancy of China in, in global uh, politics and world affairs um, are really seeing they can't pussyfoot around anymore with Beijing, which is being a bully everywhere in the world. And uh, China has been spying on Canada for decades. I know former intelligence agents who uh, were fighting Chinese spying, even in Halifax, you know, and, and anywhere there was a military installation or high technology enterprises. So the Chinese um, have been uh, going about the world, doing whatever they want with no uh, accountability, with utter impunity. 
I think they've probably uh, prospered mightily from four years of Donald Trump in the U.S. without any real coherence in in U.S. uh, foreign policy. And I do think that probably Biden and Trudeau, uh, when they spoke the other day, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, I'm sure China was on the agenda. And I have a sense that uh, the Americans are not going to uh, go easy on China any further as well. So um, I think you're going to see a, probably a gradual, slow ratcheting up of pressure and uh, and uh, and scrutiny of what China is up to in the Western world, including in Canada. All right. Finally, we're hearing that there may be a shuffle of the conservative shadow cabinet today and that Pierre Poilievre, uh, who has been the finance critic for some time for the conservatives, will be moved out of that role to a, a role of uh, criticizing the government's performance on jobs and industry, and that veteran British Columbia MP Ed Fast might be moved into the finance critics' portfolio. Um, this comes at a time when it appears Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, is trying to put a softer face on the party. He did a, an editorial board meeting with the Toronto Star recently. He talked about not forcing an election in the spring. He talked about presenting an alternative uh, to the Liberals in the next federal election, whenever that happens, rather than simply criticizing them. Um, So what do you think about these developments? Well, um, I think you only have to look at the polls to get a sense of why they're happening. I mean, you know, O'Toole himself and the Conservative Party are not exactly lighting the world on fire. Uh, uh, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau and the Liberals have made a, a number of gaffes and missteps over the last, uh, well, since the coronavirus uh, erupted. And uh, they should be more vulnerable, perhaps, than they are, uh, you know, given the state of, of a minority government dealing with a global crisis. Um, but yet, Canadians don't seem to be convinced by Aaron O'Toole. Uh, he wants to say, take Canada back and be true blue and all these other semi-dog whistly types of messages but at the same time um you know people are saying well yeah sure so we get rid of trudeau we put you in what are you going to do and uh, i don't think they've been very good at presenting this alternative uh i think there's lots of weeks and uh, uh, days and weeks when the ndp does a better job saying what they would do in the event they became government than than what the conservatives have done so um, I don't know that, you know, was Polyev doing a bad job? I'm not sure. The, you know, the guy is so abrasive and so aggressive and, and so kind of nasty that uh, it doesn't really matter where you put him. He's still going to get headlines for that type of behavior and his over-the-top uh, rhetoric. Um, you know, so I, I do think that there will be a reckoning at some point, i.e. an election. Uh, it could come any time. Uh, all the parties have to be at a state of red alert. I, I noticed they've been doing a lot of financing and, and money, uh, you know, raising money. And uh, so they do have to be in position to run an election campaign. And, and O'Toole, who sees himself as the conservative uh, prime minister in waiting, uh, does have to offer an, uh, an alternative that Canadians uh, are going to be willing to accept and trust. And I think that's the, the major issue confronting the conservatives right now. All right, great stuff, Dan. We covered a lot of ground. It's an interesting time, to say the least, in Canadian politics. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, Mark, take it easy. That's Dan Legere, longtime political writer and broadcaster. 
We understand uh, the pressure that every government is feeling to vaccine as many of their, their citizens as quickly as possible. We're certainly working every single day, day and night, uh, to make sure we're getting as many doses for Canadians as possible. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Post, Tasha Carradine argues Canadians deserve a COVID election. Carradine writes, If the vaccines fail to materialize as promised, or worse, don't adequately protect us against the new variants now circulating, we could still be grappling with outbreaks and lockdowns well into 2022. Aaron O'Toole may not want to talk about an election. The Liberals are understandably wary too. But something is going to have to give. A year in, Canadians deserve the chance to pronounce themselves on their government's performance and choose a direction for the future. In the National Observer, Max Fawcett calls for vaccines before votes. Fawcett writes, The government should put any talk of a potential spring election to rest and focus all of its attention and energies on getting Canadians vaccinated. In the end, what most Canadians want isn't an election over the COVID vaccination program, but an effective delivery rollout. And when it's over, we should all shift our attention to preparing for the next virus to come our way. In the Toronto Star, Bruce Arthur considers the cost of Ontario's reopening plan. Arthur writes, This is a roll of the dice to juice the economy, because Ontario's government decided not to wait and drive COVID cases down further. It highlights the essential divide between truly serious public health measures and the province's semi-wishful thinking, based on best-case scenarios. It could be worse, but it's still a roll of the dice, risking the slow start of a third wave with the vaccine supply on pause until later this month. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Minister of Indigenous Services will be holding another weekly briefing on his department's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on what to watch for. Mark, at 12 noon Eastern Time, Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller will be joined by Associate Deputy Minister Valérie Gidillon and Dr. Tom Wong, the Chief Medical Officer of Public Health. Now, last week, their briefing was relatively upbeat in the midst of the nationwide shortfalls and delays in vaccine deliveries from abroad. Notwithstanding what the rest of the country was experiencing, they could give a briefing about the relatively high levels of vaccination and participation in many Indigenous communities who are receiving the Moderna vaccine. But this week, Canada's stocks of Moderna vaccines are now coming to an end after being significantly reduced by the company. And yesterday, the man in charge of Canada's vaccine distribution, Major General Danny Fortin, again confirmed that Ottawa is expecting a further significant reduction in the next shipment from Moderna due in two weeks' time. In fact, we still have no idea, he says, of how many doses to count on. So the vaccine uncertainty is now going to be a central question hanging over Indigenous communities as well, and part of today's briefing. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will make a virtual announcement, along with Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna and Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. He will also take part in a virtual roundtable with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities' Big City Mayor's Caucus, followed by the Cabinet meeting. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will take part in a virtual roundtable with private sector economists as part of the government's pre-budget consultations, followed by a roundtable with members of Operation Black Vote Canada's 1834 Fellowship Program. Economic Development Minister Melanie Jolie will take part in a virtual news conference from Drummondville, Quebec. Justice Minister David Lametti 
will take part in a news conference to announce support for manufacturing businesses in several Quebec regions. And Minister for Women Mariam Monsef begins a virtual tour of the Atlantic region. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, February the 10th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.